AI and Commercial Litigation Technology. Hello and welcome to this 39 Essex Chambers podcast for AI and the law. I'm Catherine Apps-Casey and today I'm joined by Ema McCann, who's Commercial Director of TrialView. Ema is a solicitor but moved into the tech world about five and a half years ago. Ema is also a visiting lecturer at BPP and also does legal writing. Ema, thank you so much for joining me. Oh, thank you for having me, Catherine. So we're going to talk about the use of AI in commercial litigation technology. But first, it's really interesting actually to talk to someone who's made the move from the legal world into the tech world. I'd really be interested to hear how you found that. It's been quite an interesting journey, really. And I think probably the biggest thing for me, and I'm sure this is a common theme for anyone who's made the move from practice over to legal tech, is really the mindset shift all of your training. As you will know, it's very much on the premise of being right. It is also about being an expert in your field. And I think it's really interesting that you have this complete shift from having a very niche area, particularly if you are a solicitor, that you work towards to becoming a complete generalist, essentially, whenever you move into the world of tech, particularly in kind of the startup world or in smaller teams. And I think there's kind of that feeling of very much letting go, letting go of that feeling that everything has to be right. And as cliche as it sounds, is really that concept of embracing failure to move forward. And the other thing that's really stood out to me, and this is my sixth year in legal tech, is that it's no longer a world of input equating to output. It's very much you throw in an awful lot, but you're not really sure what you're going to get out at the other end. And again, it is that kind of feeling of you really don't have that feeling of being in control that you usually do, I would say, whenever you're in legal practice. And lawyers are obviously known for enjoying a very strong sense of autonomy as well. So I think probably looking back, there's quite a cultural shift. There's a mindset shift. And I think there's probably an awful lot that the legal world could learn from the tech world. Well, that's really fascinating. I think it, when you're inside the legal world, I think we tend to think of the tech world as being more exact than we are and computers and particularly computer algorithms creating very definite r- results and having a kind of precision that maybe sometimes in the law we don't have. But it's really interesting to hear your perspective that actually you've become more generalist and actually it's a world that's more used to failure and also just giving things a try than maybe we realise quite as lawyers. So you work for a company called TrialView, and I know that you've got an AI offering, and we're going to talk about that in a bit. But just first so that listeners know a bit more about what you do as a company and the use of algorithms already in that sort of trial technology. Can you just tell us a little bit about what the non-AI offering of TrialView is and what you actually use computer algorithms for in that work? Yeah, I suppose really in simple terms, it's a digital litigation workspace. And as you said, does offer AI powered tools, but it's really a centralized way to upload, manage and interrogate data or information. And we have essentially within one platform, we have electronic bundling, we have electronic evidence presentation and integrated video conferencing that it's all pulled within the the one space. And all the other tools that we have, which are smart bundling, deduplication, automatic pagination, etc., which means that it can facilitate bundle creation in seconds rather than obviously the way typically we've always done manually. We've also got different tools like inbuilt court compliance checks, 
late insertion features, etc. And the whole idea really of TravelView is to manage the digital world that we're in. Essentially, we've got this recognition that we can no longer really sustain manual ways of working when we have seen this year on year growth, exponential growth of digital data and platforms like TravelView are basically designed with that in mind. Yeah, it's been really really interesting to see the development of it because I suppose software that deduplicates documents and takes part in the or facilitates the disclosure of you have been around now for over 10 years, haven't they? And enabling those keyword search terms and the sort of chronologicalization of documents. And then, of course, with the pandemic, we've seen courts move a lot online and also the advantages of having a e-bundle that's hosted online And it tends to be those larger cases. I remember I did a big trial during the COVID times with software like this. Ironically, the case was about AI, biomedical software for COVID tests itself. But it's becoming more the norm, would you say, for document-heavy cases? Yeah, very much. I mean, I just think uh, the context is really important, as you said. I always think if we imagine that much of any organisation's data world or universe is potentially discoverable. And I think that fact alone, when you think of where we are with digital data at the moment, the sheer size and nature of it, in other words, you know, it's first of all, it's massive, but also it tends to be unstructured. So from the discovery stage onwards, there is that, as I said, that realisation that as humans, we can't actually do that anymore. And obviously the discovery process is the catalyst for the rest of the flow within the life cycle of a dispute right through to the hearing. And I think that not even really with the larger cases, but the whole way through, we are getting the sense that these kind of tools like TrialView, where you have what people refer to as a single source of truth, a data room, a workspace, where all of the information needs to be uploaded and managed. And actually in tandem with a lot of the electronic discovery platforms, I think that's starting to happen increasingly just simply because we can't mine through all of that information ourselves. It's just actually impossible. I hope anyway that we're reaching the point where, you know, that will filter through to a courtroom where people will have their laptop, they'll have an iPad, and that gone are the days of these lever arch files that are being wheeled into court with the bundle runners under a lot of pressure to run up and down and retrieve documents from a certain file and folder and the tech is both the problem and the solution. And we're on this wave that I feel that it's an inexorable wave of digitization. So I think that, yes, definitely with the larger cases, but I think it's also starting to filter down to smaller cases as well. Yeah, I suppose because we're working so much online and electronically, as you say, there's the volume of what people are creating. So what the case is about, there will be huge volumes of data that never existed before. And of course, the metadata as well, as you say, there's the structuring aspect to it, um, that things only make sense if you actually put them in some kind of structure that can then be understood by the, well, first the legal team and then the decision maker. And then I think you're right, it actually requires quite a different way of working when you're working off an electronically structured trial bundle than if you're working off something that is designed in a way that it would usually be printed out. It's a completely different sort of suite of tools that you have in terms of the cross-referencing and just I think the way that people actually think about the case when they're preparing it. What's the largest case that Trialview's ever bundled? The largest case ran in the commercial courts in the Irish jurisdiction was ran on Trialview and at the moment we're running lots of cases in the commercial court in the TCC 
in the CIT in London. But yeah, the largest one in Ireland was Rannan on Trialview. So now let's talk about sort of what AI then adds to what's already there. I know that you're currently working in partnership with Microsoft and OpenAI to offer an AI solution. Can you just tell me a little bit about what that does and what that adds to what you've already got? Yeah, so we're lucky enough to partner with Microsoft on the AI offering that we have. So I suppose to break it down again, and as I mentioned earlier, on the kind of the data mining, in other words, trawling through data, which obviously on our platform is contained, it's private data, it's very targeted data. On that side and kind of data extraction, it means that the information that's contained within a case site can be examined and interrogated essentially using these open AI tools. It's essentially intelligent search and entity search. If, for example, you ask a question, it will be able to mine across all of the data and extract an answer. And what we have done actually is we took all of the data which was in the public domain and it was from the Netflix documentary, Making a Murderer, but it was all the data about the conviction. Stephen Avery, it was a murder of Teresa Halbach. And we took all of that because there was so much data in the public domain and obviously an awful lot of diverse documentation. And one example that I suppose is probably a good way to explain it. So across all of the legal submissions, the expert evidence, the witness statements, etc. If you're, you're asking where was or when was Teresa Halbach last seen, who was the victim, it will not only answer the question, but it will bring you directly to the excerpt within that document. And it will highlight within that document where that answer was found. And all of those kind of search tools as well, the entity search as well, allows you to find connections as well and patterns between specific dates, actors, people, events. And so the kind of the capacity to get to know the evidence is now really, really potent. And again, it means that you don't need to trawl through loads of paper to to find an answer. I mean, I know I've been there in the past when I knew that there was a specific sentence or a paragraph or a document that I wanted to find within a file. I mean, I'm thinking of years ago before anything was really electronic. And to know that you can actually do that with AI is incredibly powerful. I suppose going back to your sort of first theme about moving from the law world to the tech world, I suppose as lawyers, we tend to be especially protective about our client confidentiality. And I suppose thinking about the mining side, lawyers are often very keen to limit any collateral use of their clients' documents. Can you talk to me about how that can be approached in the world where if you want to be using in some kind of AI amplified sort of search engine, how you can go about protecting your client confidentiality while also getting the value that that kind of program can add? Yeah, I think it's a really important question. And I think people have talked about this a lot recently within legal because there's such an unusual dynamic in the sense that internally within the legal profession, There's an awful lot of pressure to be innovative and forward thinking. But then externally, we are obviously renowned for and trained to regulate and to mitigate risk. And I just think it's really interesting that with the growth, with this massive explosion, I suppose, of AI tools, we have this paradoxical situation whereby we are advising and trying to protect clients in terms of certain risks, but then internally we need to be concerned about our own kind of client confidentiality. And I think really we know, for example, as a starting point that because AI relies on a massive amount of data to be reviewed, it opens us up to certain 
vulnerabilities. And I think we've seen how this is played out in a global scale. And I feel as though we're in this kind of privacy paradox already, whereby our online behaviour is completely at odds with our concerns about privacy. And, you know, personally, I know that I feel as though I kind of sacrifice certain concerns about privacy for speed and efficiency. For example, if I'm downloading something on my phone or I need to do something quickly, sometimes we're not really sure what data we're passing over. But I think the important distinction here is that we've heard so much about ChatGBT, which is we've all been influenced, essentially. It's in the zeitgeist. It's on our minds. We're thinking about it constantly. But it's completely different because that has scraped data and taken loads of information from various sources that are in the public domain. And they could be inaccurate, erroneous. There's been lots of stories about falsities, irregularities, hallucinations. But the disparity is when you're using tools like TrialView or legal tech tools, that you are extracting data from a very contained private set. And they're contained within those set parameters. And I think it really highlights to me recently why the legal tech industry exists. It, the legal tech industry is quite a, it's actually a, a brilliant world to be a part of. It's a brilliant community, but it's basically usually made up of former lawyers, barristers, practitioners. And so there's that understanding that actually security and privacy and transparency are up there at the very top. And having worked both in practice and now on the kind of the tech vendor side, the rigorous procurement that needs to be done in order to actually move from would you like a demo of what we're doing into actually being engaged by a law firm. It's quite a long process and so it should be. And I think we're totally right to be vigilant. And on a personal level, there are a lot of trust issues in terms of AI and, you know, how that will pan out in years to come for all of us. But I think I personally feel I get that sense of assurance within legal because as massive as the industry is, the pocket of legal tech is understands very clearly those kind of security and privacy concerns. And I think there's just that legal tech is actually, it's been shaped around the needs of the profession. And, you know, the first questions we usually go through after a demo relate to confidentiality, trust, security. It just is so key, isn't it? Yeah. From a, the perspective of being regulated, it has to underpin everything, doesn't it? You can't let your client data be used for training somebody on somebody else's case or, or that kind of thing. And I suppose the advantage of the cases that you have been training your algorithm on happen to have lots of documents already in the public domain. And I suppose there's always a there's a learning angle that has to be gone through before you can have tech that really works. And as you say, it's how do you find that balance between protecting client confidentiality while also allowing the space to innovate and to be able to be getting things wrong in order that you can then be getting them right the next time? I wonder with us lawyers generally being quite so cautious, how much of the innovation in this area is going to be led by lawyers or how much by courts? The courts, that we've now got the online and digital rules being put together by a subset of the CPR Rules Committee over here, or possibly by clients who might be some of the 100 million users that have signed up to ChatGPT since it went live only a couple of months ago. So who do you think is going to be driving this or do you think it's going to be a combination of all? I think it might be a bit of a mix. And I suppose to go back to that comparison again of general usage versus usage within the legal world. Because we've seen this kind of explosion of ChatGBT and how many users and 100 million users in two months or whatever the stats are, 
I think that there's because it's feeding into and everything eventually does feed into law and very slowly. But when you think of it, even if that exponential growth were to feed slowly into law, that's still going to be quick because that's set a record. And now I think Threads has set a new record for a consumer app. But yeah, I think we've actually reached this kind of inflection point. And I mean, there, there's science behind it in the sense of if you have engagement from um, 10% or more of a specific demographic, that then majority engagement will automatically flow. And there was a recent study actually by the Law Society, but it was on law tech more generally, but that kind of the stats are it's 10% and above. And so if you've got that stat, we've already seen what's happened with ChatGBT. But also I think they're going back to your question about being client driven. Clients are pushing for, they want their law firm to work more innovatively. There's more pressure to be digitally competent, but there's also a lot of pressure to comply with their ESG objectives, which inevitably means that you work electronically. And I think that ultimately, if a client starts to see that their law firm is not engaging certain tools that may put them at a disadvantage to a competitor and that actually will impact on the outcome of a case, I think that will really push law firms to sit back and think, well, actually, we really need to think about using these tools. Otherwise, we will be at a competitive disadvantage. And I think that as cautious as lawyers have been, they've probably embraced technology an awful lot more than I think people thought. And if the inflection point is true, which I believe it to be, <laughs> I do think that's very interesting in terms of the court, though, because I do think for proper change to happen. I wonder whether rule reform is needed because we have lawyers, practitioners, barristers who are under so much pressure that actually it often may feel like that technology is another thing to actually think about. It's another layer on top of a very busy schedule. And there's also a lack of standardisation. It, it is amazing quite how extremely particular, but also how extremely particularly different all of the different court guides for the different parts of the Queen's Bench Division are in terms of what needs to be in bundles or what needs to not be in bundles or what needs to be done in any particular way. And as far as I understand it, I think the Rules Committee are trying to get on top of that, but it's that balance between not wanting to stifle innovation in areas that are seeing new technologies and new needs while not wanting to hold people back while also not wanting to sort of add too much to, as you say, the sort of last job before sending in a bundle is to check which guide applies. Have you done all of the things that particular guide needs to add? Can I just ask you about access to justice more broadly? Some people have said that an advantage of law tech is that it can make the types of things that lawyers do accessible to people who can't afford lawyers at all. And obviously the type of trial tech that Trialview uses, generally speaking, has been used in the most expensive document heavy cases, but less traditionally in the smaller cases. Do you see that the type of structure of the kind of software that you work on being able to expand legal services into those who don't have lawyers at all? Or do you see that what you do is specific to kind of lawyer law? But if so, does it have application to smaller cases? And could it make those cheaper, particularly for clients who maybe don't have so much money to litigate? Yeah, I think that's really important. And I think it probably should be a priority for all of us, really, because I think the access to legal advice is increasingly difficult. But, you know, beyond the actual advice stage to get to the point where you've got a chance, I suppose, as a litigant in person, for example, 
you know, it's difficult enough for people who have actually instructed someone. And we also have this assumption that everyone has access to the technology in the first place. But yeah, I do think that aside from the commercial element where there would be a competitive advantage in my view, I think that it means it could be leveraged as a tool that will actually level the playing field. Because if you have tools, you know, that we have at TrialView, for example, that can actually go through an awful lot of documentation in a very short period of time, does that mean that rather than needing to pay for a legal team that actually a litigant in person can perhaps afford to pay one lawyer to do the work of a team? Or in fact, will that it actually then go further whereby a litigant in person can actually access these tools, use them at a much, I suppose, probably in a simpler level perhaps, but use that in a way that they can actually represent themselves. And there, I suppose there's an awful lot of examples have been given recently of the kind of the smaller, what people deem to be the kind of the smaller cases where, for example, if you have a, you want to appeal a parking fine, AI has already been in existence for quite a while for those kind of things. But I think the other thing as well is that for bigger cases, if you're using TrialView during a hearing, and you're able to use it to detect inconsistencies in witness evidence. And it's almost like somebody described it like a digital lie detector. I mean, that's incredibly powerful and could give people hypothetically the capacity to, again, either not in, have to instruct and pay for a large legal team, but could instruct perhaps one lawyer or something that they could do themselves. But I do think that's probably quite a way off. Yeah, I guess it goes back to that point of you, you actually have to almost mentally think about a case structurally in your own mind as the presenting lawyer quite differently when you're using the IT tools to inform what it is that you're going to go to next. So in a cross-examination, I would know all of the page numbers and all of the references to what someone has said on a particular issue before. And if they go one way or the other in the witness box, I'll know from my memory. But if you actually have a computer that's then prompting you that there's maybe something different that you don't have on your mental list or how do you actually ask your next question and what actually are you referring to next? I think that will be quite a big challenge for well, both the software and for the lawyers. Going back then to your first theme, do you think that there's more that we can do to help bridge that gap between the world of law and coming to terms with these new innovations? Because I think one of the other guests we had on this series talked very powerfully about how Actually, at its heart, a lot of lawyers are really very scared about this technology. How can we go about bridging the fear gap? I feel really strongly about that as well. I, I feel as though there's an awful lot of disconnects within the world of legal. And for me, it has to start at academia. It also has to come from the judiciary because we are all at the moment working and operating in very inconsistent ways. And I think that's always been the case within legal. But I think it's really been compounded by the advance of tech in recent years. And then this kind of this extra level of AI, which I think has then made people really sit back and think, gosh, I feel even more removed than I did at the beginning. And that applies as much to law students as it does to a partner or barrister or arbitrator. And I've had these conversations with people from all spectrum or sorry, across the spectrum of law. And I think there is not enough knowledge sharing. I really believe that there isn't enough knowledge sharing within the profession. And I appreciate that we are all very busy and often working groups are set up that maybe lose momentum or perhaps people just don't have the time. But I think that I understand the points about standardization because, you know, having generic 
practices doesn't always work. And as you mentioned, it removes the kind of sense of moving forward and innovation. But I'm just getting to the point where I'm wondering whether we do need some kind of standardization and whether AI could actually be a tool to assist us with that. And the example that you give earlier, if you've got all of these different court guidance, just by way of an example, and perhaps there's a way that we could actually use AI tools to pull out those very simply and create comparative tables. Perhaps somebody's already done that already, I'm not sure. But I think that there has to be a push from all sides. And I just do think there could also be, as well as standardization, I think it could be some kind of a reform needed because I think unless that happens, there isn't going to be enough within the profession itself to actually make the change. And as well as the kind of disconnect, if you think that electronic bundling is mandated by the commercial court guide and yet there is no mandated training and who's responsible for that training is it the law firm should it be mandatory cpd training and everybody's working in very different ways which leads to issues from the paralegal the whole way through to the judge and it also leads to issues from a tech perspective because we have clients who come to us who have completely worked manually or a client has sent a USB stick from halfway across the world with loads of data on it that's in all these different unstructured forms. I guess a lot of it comes back to structure, doesn't it? That if what you're creating with more data is just more lack of structure, you're just creating more stuff. And with more stuff, that just takes more time. That doesn't save anybody any time whatsoever. So there needs to be some kind of structure and way of navigating all of this. A lot of it is, I suppose, in these rules committees, often the people who are really keen on it, who are keen to volunteer on those committees. So you, you don't get a necessarily a representative sort of cross-section of the profession. And as you say, there's just so many different issues that arise. But picking up on that in terms of optimism versus pessimism, one of the questions that we're asking everybody in this series is a scale question on a scale of zero to 10, where zero is the most pessimistic about the effect of AI on the world moving forwards to 10, which is the most optimistic in terms of AI providing lots and lots of solutions going forwards. And we've been asking everyone to place themselves on that spectrum between zero and 10. Can I be so unkind as to ask you to put yourself on that spectrum of zero to 10 and just tell us just very briefly why you've chosen to be the number that you have? Probably on a professional level, I would say probably about an eight or a nine. I feel very optimistic about that because I do think that once the kind of hype subsides and the fear subsides, that we could end up with a very interesting world. And I'm thinking of this in a disputes or in a litigation context where you can ask you know, a natural language question. You can ask a question, essentially, and you'll have a kind of a wealth of audio, video, text, other data that might display all of that to you in seconds. I find that really interesting. But on a personal level, I, I probably might be a bit less. <laughs> I think because it's just, I think we've all got a very conflicted, ambivalent view of technology and AI in our personal worlds. But I feel, and it's the point I made earlier, I feel as though the legal profession, because we're under such a duty at all times, I suppose, obviously to regulate and to direct and offer guidance, I feel as though it's like almost like a protected world. But I suppose personally, I suppose that's a slightly different concern. That's really fascinating. Well, thank you so much, Ima McCann, for joining me. You've been listening to this 39S Chambers AI and Law podcast. I'm Catherine Apps. If you enjoyed this podcast, please return to 39 com for more episodes. And thank you so much for listening. Okay.